I encourage you to open up now to the book of Hebrews. It's toward the end of your New Testament. We're starting a new series this morning. We're going to start working through the book of Hebrews. And this morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's Word. I remember when I was a child going to the grocery store with my mom, and there were probably lots of things that me and my brother wanted to get when we were at the grocery store. Candy and pop and all those kind of things. But there's one thing that I remember we wanted a lot every time that seems the most unreasonable now. And it was frozen dinners. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, every time we went through that aisle, if you guys share this desire when you were kids. But like we wanted a frozen dinner. Kids cuisine, you remember these? The little kids cuisines and the, they had the little brownie. Up in the corner. I loved those things. And I thought that they were great. Or Hungry Man. We got those too. And we felt like we were going to have a big meal. We thought we were pretty big to get a Hungry Man. It was a quick quick and, and practical meal. And we always wanted my mom to get those when we were kids. And what we failed to understand being immature and, and unreasonable was the goodness of home-cooked meals. Which my mom was committed to. <laughs> And a better diet than the kids' cuisine and the hungry man could offer for our health and our growth. And as we start a new series in the book of Hebrews, there might be this, this yearning and desire and hunger in us for something quick and practical. A frozen dinner of sorts. We might want a step-by-step guide to how to handle troubles. An instruction manual to happiness. Ten ways to avoid heartbreak. God's specific will for your life, including how to find the right job for you and the right spouse. And on and on we could go. All those things might be good and we might long for them. But here we have the book of Hebrews. That although it's full of practical application and day-to-day things. But its aim isn't primarily to give us quick Practical help. The Bible has plenty of quick practical help. But I think that if you're looking for the Bible and if you use your quick reference guide to whatever problem that you're facing, I think that you're going to see that it's not going to help you as much as you desire. Because that's not the aim of the Scripture. To offer quick practical help for whatever is going on in your life. Rather, I would say that the aim of the Scripture, along with the aim of the book of Hebrews, is to show us the greatness and glory of God. It's to show us an exalted Christ. It's to point us onward to how awesome God is. Showing Him as the answer to all of those other things that we actually are yearning for. They're found primarily in Christ. And in knowing that, knowing His greatness, knowing His supremacy, we have the most practical thing in all the world. 
The most practical knowledge that anyone could ever receive is to know the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of God. If we'll see it. Hebrews sets out to ensure that readers know that Jesus is the greatest God-man ever. And that knowing Jesus changes everything. And so Hebrews is an interesting book. It takes a somewhat mysterious form to us. It's a mysterious book in lots of ways. We don't know its date. We don't know its author. We don't even know its audience. And so we're going to look at those kind of things. But it's there's surrounded by mystery. So it seems that the book of Hebrews was uh, taking place, was written before Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So not far after the life of Jesus. It seems that it was written before then. We don't know. It's possible that it was written after then. seems that maybe that some of the context of the Emperor Nero being in charge fits some of the content that Hebrews is speaking of as believers were under intense persecution from that emperor. The audience, once again, is a mystery. It seems like they're second generation believers. In other words, they weren't around to hear Jesus specifically, but heard from those who had heard from Jesus. So the gospel had spread to them. I think that you could make a a pretty good case for saying that the audience are people that are in Palestine, although it certainly isn't limited to that. And and maybe even specifically written to Jewish Christians. People would come out of the Jewish faith into Christianity. In other words, who'd who'd moved from saying, like, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had been talking about. Believing in Him, they would be called Jewish Christians. It's even possible that, that this book is written to a group of priests who would come out of the Jewish faith into Christianity, believing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah and all the things that were pointed to in the Old Testament. It's possible that it could be written to priests. But it's also possible that it could be written to people in Rome. And the content is certainly not too narrow to be to fit in with Gentiles as well. Certainly, Gentiles would have been aware of all the things that are going on in the book of Hebrews and, and could have understood and learned from the book of Hebrews as well. And so it's entirely possible that all those ideas about being Palestine and being Jewish Christians could not be true as well. It's tough because it's not a letter in the strictest sense. It, it doesn't have, here's the audience, here's who it's going to, like Paul's letters. He wrote to the churches in Galatia. He says, I, Paul, write to you guys. All right, that makes it a little bit easier for us. We don't have to wander near as much. It's not a letter in the same way that other letters are. And so it's not easy to know the audience and the date and, and all that's going on. It's much more of a sermon. It's, a, it's an exhortation to faithful action, not a strict letter form. It does kind of have some letter characteristics, but it doesn't seem to follow that all the way through. And the author is maybe the most mysterious part of the book. Because the book of Hebrews is what we would call an anonymous book. No one has signed their name to it. Now, as far as I read this week, I think that there's at least, at least, there's probably more, there's at least six plausible authors that have been uh, put forth, Paul being one of them. He was accepted early and rejected early, and then accepted later and rejected later. Paul's all over this. And then you can definitely, as you read through the book of Hebrews, you see some Pauline-type comments that sound some of it like Paul, but a lot of other parts was like, that doesn't sound like Paul at all. I heard an intriguing one, and I think that this is intriguing too, because maybe I hadn't heard it as much anymore, but maybe Barnabas, who would have been attached closely to the apostles, and maybe, and is indeed called an apostle in the book of Acts himself, maybe Barnabas wrote this book, he would have been familiar with all this content, he would have had a place of authority to be able to write scripture, so maybe him, Clement of Rome was another one. Luther thought it was Apollos, others thought it was Aquila or Priscilla, and or both of them, could have been both of them, could have been one of them. And and even Luke has been offered up as a suggestion. And they're all possibilities. And so if I was forced, here's what I would conclude. I would conclude with one commentator that the author is 
A man of the church. Now he's serving the people of God by having a high view of the Old Testament and saying that this is Scripture. His content is certainly faithful with all that God has revealed up to this point. Faithful in explaining the work of Jesus. And he makes clear application for believers in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But we have to have one question from anonymous writings. is the question of, should they be in the Scripture? Should this be in our Bible? Should this be included in the canon? Should this have been canonized? Canonization is just the official recognition of Scripture. It doesn't make something Scripture that's not Scripture. It's just recognize Scripture as Scripture. And so, if we don't know who wrote it, then should it be in our Bibles? Because one of the tests of the canon was close tie to an apostle. We don't know who wrote this, and so how are we supposed to be sure and certain that this should be in our Scripture? Well, Hebrews was universally accepted early on from all sorts of camps, from all sorts of places. And so early on, Christians are recognizing this as authoritative writing. They are looking and reading through the book of Hebrews and all of them would overwhelmingly affirm this is Scripture, this is from the Lord. And so it was accepted early, accepted universally. It's also, we need to start taking things on their own terms. I would say to somebody about the Scripture, before you reject it outright, why don't you see what the Scripture says about itself? Because if it doesn't claim to be authoritative, then I certainly wouldn't want you to live under its authority. But if it does, then you need to listen to it on its own terms. It seems like if we take Hebrews on its own terms, then it would certainly claim of itself to be authoritative. That it would certainly think that it is. I, I think that you can see from Hebrews that they are writing Scripture. They think that this is to be authoritative writings for the church. And so it says this of itself. Beyond that, here's the, maybe the most key one, is that all of its content, although we don't know it, that it was written by an apostle or not, all of its content is apostolic. In other words, it's, it's, it's content that would have come from the apostles. It, it fits with, with all the rest that's going on in the Scripture. It fits in so nicely with all that they're doing and indeed gives us this great explanation of Jesus and how He is greater than so many others. And so while there's much mystery around the author... And its date and its audience, here's what we don't have a mystery about, and that's its, its message. Now, the message of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. That He is greater than all. One author says it this way, that the glory of God in Christ is clearly the gravitational center of the theology of Hebrews. And so when you turn to the book of Hebrews, there's no question of parody here. Like, well, is Moses better or is Jesus better at what they're doing? Like, no question there. Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, what about in terms of uh, the priesthood? Is Jesus better than Aaron then? No question of parody. Like, like, we're comparing them and their clothes. Jesus is greater. He is the supreme one. That's what the book of Hebrews gives us. And so here in these opening verses, this theme is gloriously described as readers are shown that Jesus is the great prophet who is God's word himself, who hears from God directly and speaks from God. And it's the Word of God embodied. He's the great King who's seated on the majesty and high. He's the great priest who made purifications for our sins and sat down. And that's just in the first four verses. And so this book, regardless of whether we know its author, date, etc., this book is worth our time and study because we need a very practical thing. We need to know the greatness of Jesus Christ. We need to know that He is supreme over all and we need to be well fed by that. 
And that's what the author sets out to do. He sets out to show the supremacy of Christ. And he does this uh, initially in the first two verses by showing us four contrasts. And then in the next two verses, seven affirmations of Jesus' greatness. So we see four contrasts and then seven affirmations of greatness. So look back at verses 1 and 2. The author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. No, we don't want to overlook something right from the beginning because this is implied, but it's important that God spoke. God spoke. And so not only do we believe that God created all things and just kind of left it out there for us to figure out what's going on, who created things, how things are supposed to work. No, God creates all things and He speaks into His creation. He doesn't leave us to figure it out. He is graciously not only doing great acts, but He is graciously interpreting them for us so that we might know Him. So when Scripture speaks of, of God speaking, it's reminding us. And when we have the Scripture open in front of us, it's reminding us that God has invited us to know Him. He wants us to know what He's like, to know what He's done. He hasn't left us in doubt to think about that. Yes, there's some mysteries that we aren't going to know, but God has spoken that we might know Him. If God had not spoken, then there would be no right knowledge of Him. We wouldn't come to these things on our own. God graciously gives them to us. So if He has spoken, then you can know that you can know Him. And so while there's much beyond us because He's God, make no mistake, He can be known by anyone through this Word. How He has made Himself known is the question. And in in the first four verses of Hebrews, He gives us four contrasts to help us with how He has made Himself known. And so the contrasts are contrast in ages, contrast in recipients... Contrast in the agency he uses and contrast in ways. We'll go through all these. So the first one is ages. He says long ago, verse 1, and then in these last days. So there's a contrast of ages going on here. Long ago versus last days. All of history has been moving in a Godward direction. God has been ordering and structuring all things according to the counsel of His will. He's been ordering from long ago until these last days. And in all of them, He reminds us, He did speak then and He spoke now. All of them, God has not only been ordering, but been speaking into. He has been moving forward history to a certain direction. To now we're at the point that God has moved us into the last days. The Old Testament looks forward to this. There's all sorts of expectations and promises of an age to come. Indeed, they even use the word last days. And all over the New Testament are proclamations and affirmations that what God has promised that would come has come in Christ, in His work, in His words. And so we have all these fulfillments. Here's what was happening and God has moved us forward to in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now we're in the, the last days. In Acts chapter 2, this is affirmed for us. Peter, he quotes the the prophet Joel. He even says, Joel spoke about those last days. And it's clear from from Peter's instruction and sermon there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that he's saying what has been prophesied and promised about these last days has been fulfilled in your hearing by Jesus' resurrection and giving of the spirits. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament expectations and promises that He comes and His life, death, and resurrection and giving of the Spirit inaugurates the last days that we all now live in. And so that's the first contrast long ago versus in these last days. The second one is the contrast of recipients. You see this, that He spoke to our fathers and then now He has spoken to us. 
our fathers and us. So our fathers would have been the, the patriarchs at least of the Old Testament. But also I think that all the people that were fit under the Old Covenant would be part of our fathers. They're pointing to all the people that God had made promises to in the Old Testament. All of them that would know that covenant and were under those promises. Those were the fathers whom God had spoken to before. Those were the recipients, specific recipients of God's word, God's law, God's promises. And now we have a recipients of something different. We're different recipients. We're, we're recipients now under a different covenant, under the new covenant. Whereas the old covenant, God, He made promises. In the new covenant, He keeps promises. These promises have been kept and will be kept. That's what the new covenant tells us. It's, a, it's the same. It's, there's a continuation, but there's also some get, discontinuity in the continuation. We're a different people of God. We're not all ethnic Israel. And we all have the, the Spirit living within us. There's, there's different things that are happening. And so there's a difference between our fathers and us now. And so as He spoke into the fathers and gave them words, not just He did redeeming acts, but He also interpreted them and spoke to them about those redeeming acts. We have the same thing now. He does more redeeming acts, namely in His Son Christ, who comes and bears the sins of the world. And He doesn't just leave us once again to figure it out, but He also interprets those redeeming acts for us. And so He has spoken to us now through that. And so what's the agency then? What are the agency for which He speaks? Long ago He spoke... By the prophets. But in these days, in the last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So there's a difference in agency. That is that God used many prophets in the Old Testament to reveal Himself. And He revealed Himself progressively. Not any of them had the full picture. They were just giving what God had given to them. And and, then you kind of collect them all together and you get a pretty good picture of God. Because He was revealing revealing Himself progressively and, and partially through these prophets. But then comes the Son. And the Son is the the perfect and full revelation of God. He is the Word of God embodied. Like There's there's nothing else to be said. There's no progression progression in Jesus. There's no partiality. Like This is God. If you want God revealed, you see it in Jesus. This is how He's revealed Himself to us now. And that brings us to the fourth contrast in that He revealed Himself in many ways. Many times and in many ways. And this is implied, but I think it's fairly certain that now He has revealed Himself in one way. So before He had revealed Himself in visions, dreams, voices, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, riding on a wall, even a donkey gets in there and how He spoke to His people. But now, but now the contrast is there's a singular fashion through which God is revealing Himself, namely through His Son Jesus. In other words, God speaking, His revealing, finds completion and its end in Christ. Jesus, then, is the way that He communicates to us, is the revealing of God to us. If we want to see it, we look to Jesus. So why do we read the New Testament? That's not Jesus speaking, but Jesus did appoint these apostles. And He told them, promised them, I'm going to lead you into truth so that you would lay foundational teaching about Me. And who I am and what that means now for the church. So they were doing some foundational teaching that Jesus specifically gifted them and employed them for. And so with Jesus and the apostolic writings handed down to us as we have in our New Testament, nothing more is needed. Nothing more is needed. You don't need to wait for a personal dream and vision from God to hear from God. 
You don't need to wait for God to reveal Himself through a donkey to you in order to know God. Like You don't need to wait for some sort of special feeling or anything. None of that needs to be done. You want to know God. He has done it in one way. He's revealed Himself through His Son. That's the way. One commentator says it this way, that this revelation stands both in fulfillment of and in contrast to the old order of things. Thus, Christ, the Son, through whom God has spoken His ultimate word, and indeed who is Himself that word, is the prophet par excellence, whose coming is the culmination of all the prophecies and promises of the past. The opening statement then sets the tone and introduces the main theme of the whole epistle, namely, the uniqueness and supremacy of Christ in comparison with the transitory and incomplete character of all that preceded His coming. The uniqueness and supremacy of Christ in comparison to all that had come before. That's the aim of this book. And this is further put before us and asserted from the outset by seven affirmations of Jesus' greatness. In verse 2, he continues on, He is the heir of all things. That's the first affirmation, that Jesus, as He comes, He is the heir of all things. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised that one would come from the woman. Seed would come from the woman and would smash the head of the seed of the serpent. So one's going to come and conquer the evil and the wickedness that was brought in through sin. That was a promise. There's, there's, there's an inheritance that needs to be taken. In Genesis chapter 17, God calls Abraham and He says to Abraham, You are going to be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. And in Psalm 2, we're also pointed to this inheritance of Jesus. Psalm 2 says this, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Nations were promised to Abraham. And the ends of the earth will be your possession. Now isn't this interesting? That the book of Psalms, God is speaking and He's saying to a son. Now Israel could have been a son. Abraham could have been a son. All those things could have fit into that category. But we know that it's pointing us onward to the son who has been begotten of the Father. And he says of the Son, Ask me and I will give this as your heritage. This will be your inheritance. The nations, the ends of the earth will be your possession. And God's desire isn't some cosmic real estate. No, God's desire is to reclaim and restore what had been lost in Adam. His, his idea, His goal, His aim was to go after people. That's His inheritance in the nations. He doesn't want their land. He wants their people. And so Jesus, He goes in. He goes after them and He gets His nations as His possessions through His death, through His resurrection. This is an ongoing mission. He is still claiming His inheritance as the Son overall, the Supreme One, the Heir of all things, is still gaining His inheritance. And here's the gracious thing for us, is that He's invited us into this. Through us, if you trust in Him, you get to join Him in obtaining His inheritance, the nations. That's essentially what missions is. We're claiming what Christ already owns, like He owns it all. And we're going to say, you need to give yourself to Christ. He's the heir of all things. Also, with Christ as the heir of all things, we're reminded in many places in the New Testament that those who are joined with Him are co-heirs. Sinful man can join with the supreme Christ as co-heirs. And he's the heir of all things. And so that's a pretty good deal for us who deserve no things. 
All because of what He's done, who He is, and what He's done. Second affirmation of greatness is that creation happened through Him. He's the heir of all things through whom also He created the world, says the end of verse 2. He's the creative agent. That means of Him that He's the uncreated one and that He's got some unique inside of Him power to then say things and create things that didn't exist before. John says it this way in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. For the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. And get this, for Him. He is the creator of all things. And Romans tells us that His his invisible attributes, His eternal power, are able to be known, are clearly perceived in the things that He has made. The third affirmation, as you continue in verse 3, is that He is the radiance of the glory of God. Where there is light, there is radiance coming out of that light. You can't have one without the other. And although this is hard to understand the uniqueness of the Trinity, there's, there's some distinctness in their persons, and yet they're coexistent together. You can't have one without the other, and here you have radiance coming, and Jesus is that radiance of the glory of God. That is that no one is equal with Him. There is none that can do what He can do. All are shattered images, but Jesus comes as the radiance of the glory of God. He is perfect radiance, perfect glory coming from God. Moses, who was this great prophet and mediator in the Old Testament, was to radiate. He was to represent the people to God and God to the people. He was to be this mediator between them. But he failed. He couldn't do it. He he functions imperfectly as a prophet and a mediator. Kings were supposed to radiate the greatness and power and glory of God. But they failed. They were fractured images. Pick the best one. Solomon, David. They failed in radiating the glory of God. Priests were to stand before God and represent the people. But as they came, they had to make sacrifices for their own sin. They couldn't radiate the exact glory of God. There's only one who can. Only one is the radiance of God's glory. And He came that we might know who God is. Amen. The fourth affirmation is that He is the exact imprint of His nature. This almost further fully fills in what it means that He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. If we want to see God and what God is like, we look to Jesus. He is the perfect representation of God. There's no better way to see God than to see Christ. Like, that's it. This is what He says in the book of John to one of His disciples... Philip asked him this question in John chapter 14, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And I agree with that. Philip like, yeah, show us the Father and it'll be enough for me. And here's what Jesus says to us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you see the Father. If you want to know what God's like, you look to Jesus. If you see Jesus, you see God. 
And it's not just about physical appearance. It's about essence and nature. Who is God? What's He like? And so we get to, we don't get to physically see Jesus. We get to see Jesus. And Hebrews is trying to give us a view of Jesus that we might know God. That's what He's trying to do for us. That we'd see Him. Jesus was so perfectly God that He's called the exact imprint. He's not an image. He's the exact image. He's the real thing. You might have heard of U2's lead guitar player. He goes by The Edge, stage name. I have a picture of him. There he is. He wears this customary, or traditional, I guess, for him, beanie, black leather jacket, guitar slung around his neck. That's kind of his look. One year, I heard the story of him taking his son trick-or-treating. This is how he dresses up. He wears his black beanie, his black leather jacket. He slings a guitar around his neck. And he hears this as he's walking away from a house. So these, these parents say, well, that's a bit sad. Well, that dad doesn't look anything like the edge. <laughs> All they've seen of the edge has been from a distance. Pictures. Not embodied form. Like they haven't seen him up close. So when they do see him, they're like, ah, that guy doesn't really look like him. Like I've seen pictures of him and he's not you. And you know what's interesting? That Jesus gets a similar response. That Jesus comes and, and, and people don't recognize that this is God. In fact, many of them rejected Him completely. saying, you're a lunatic. You must be demon-possessed. And they crucified Him because they didn't recognize this is God. We don't have to look from a distance or see pictures. We have embodied in front of us Jesus Christ. The Old Testament gave us hints, parts, but Jesus perfectly embodies all that God is. He is the exact representation of God. God sent His Son. He is the exact image so that people would know Him. Jesus reveals God. And so may we not make a similar mistake when we see Him in His Word, what He's like, His character and His nature, and say, that's not like God. No, that is God. And let's not miss God here. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. The fifth affirmation, as we continue, is He's the upholder of the universe. That exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now this verb for uphold carries the idea of movement, of progress. He's moving something toward an end. In other words, His his upholding is passive and stationary. And so one commentator says that He upholds the universe... Not like Atlas supporting a dead weight on his shoulders, but as one who carries all things forward on their appointed course. So in other words, like he's actively upholding things even now. And so if you want to see Jesus at work, look around you. Like everything that is being upheld right now, me, you, all the molecules that exist in these walls and the floors, all every single atom is being upheld actively by Jesus. All you have to do is look around at anything or everything and you see the work of Jesus in front of you. He is upholding every single bit of it. It's astoundingly true that every atom is absolutely dependent upon Jesus to be upheld. If He doesn't uphold it, it is not upheld. And believers, can we just... This is so encouraging. Our God knows every single molecule. Everywhere. All the time. And what is He doing with every molecule all the time? He's upholding it by the word of His power. Surely He sees us. Surely He upholds us. Surely He can handle anything facing us because He knows every single molecule that's ever been or ever will be. Surely He can keep us to the end. He's going to get there in Hebrews. But it starts with Him saying that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The sixth affirmation 
is that he says after making purification for sins. And so he makes purification for sin. Jesus is ceaselessly, ceaselessly, continually, the radiance of the glory of God. He's continuously upholding the universe by the word of his power. It won't be upheld. But he made purification. Once for all. It's done. Purifications through his body, through his blood. And he says these words on the cross. This one word phrase. Finished. Done. That was his cry. Because no other purification now needs to be made for for sin ever again. That all that has needed to be done to purify sin has been done in Christ. We don't need to make more sacrifices. We don't need to act like we need to bring our own sacrifices in order to contribute to His sacrifice. He has made purification. It is done. And so the way to get in on that purification is to be joined with Him. To believe in Him. So we know that sin leaves this crimson stain, but He can wash it white as snow. How does He do that? He made purification through His body and through His blood. That's how He does that. And so in Isaiah, He says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He did that. We don't have to keep doing that. So now Jesus' purification opens up a way for for us to have a relationship with God. He opens up the door for us to come into a holy God purified because of what He has done because of His work. And so now do we have this Jesus who not only perfectly represents and reveals who God is, but He also in and of Himself makes a way for us to have relationship with God. Which brings us to the last affirmation that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits down. He sits on this, this way as described as a, this is a royal throne. This is a seat of honor that none can claim except the one who has done what Jesus has done. And this reminds us as he sits down that he is reigning, that he is ruling over all as the great king. But let's not miss this, that it is a seated rule. Our culture, I think, makes this really easy for us because we have what we call lazy boys. Now, we do not want to switch out and say that Jesus is sitting on a lazy boy. That's not what we mean. But I think lazy boy gets at what's going on here. Why do you sit in a lazy boy? Your work is done. Take it easy. Take a load off your feet. Like, relax for the day. The problem is that we don't often get back out of that lazy boy as easily as we got into it. And indeed, we know that our work is not done. We're still going to have to do more. But Jesus sits down because His work is done. Finished was his cry. And he sits down because he has done all that has been needed to be done for people to know him, to be in relationship with him. His redeeming work is truly finished. And so he sits down. Now at times, this happens in basketball, a player will be taken out early, maybe towards the end of a game, if he's like a, a senior, or they want to give one more opportunity, one more chance for the, for the crowd, for the audience to... Heap honor and glory on them and give them applause and standing ovation. And so sometimes you'll be towards the end of the game and they'll take the best player out so that they can receive once again one more round of applause, one more time and opportunity for honor. And that's what Jesus has done. We look in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and explains this well. Verse 6, 
It says of Jesus, He was in the form of God. Yet He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. He sits down and the crowd has another opportunity to keep honor and glory and praise on Him because He sits down after having defeated Satan and sin and death and made purification for the sins of the world. Now we get the chance to see Him and know Him seated and heap honor and glory and praise upon Him because of what He has done. And so believers, we we serve a God who who is affirmed in His greatness and, and it's definitive. Like this is His work. It's so completed that He sits down. So in the midst of a chaotic world full of constant activity, Constant working. Ceaseless stirring. We have a God who sits. We get to serve and trust one who's finished his work and has sat down because he's greater than all those things. Jesus' work is finished having made purification for sin and he sits down and he gets the supreme honor bestowed upon him as we finish in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Surely superior to angels is the idea. He's definitely over them. He's the name that's above all names. That at his name, every tongue is going to confess. Every knee is going to bow before him. How could it be any other way? Because he's the great prophet who speaks what he hears from the Father. And indeed, it's the word of God embodied, perfectly revealing God in all that he is, in all that he does, in all that he says. He's the great king who wins the victory for his people. And he leads them into their glorious and rich inheritance that no other king could have led them into. He's the great priest who doesn't have to continue to make sacrifices day after day, year after year for the sins of the people, but he purifies for sins once and for all and sits. How could it be any other way than that we bestow upon him the name that's surely above the angels? Amen. This is the supremacy of Christ. This is the most practical knowledge in all the world. Because if Jesus is this, and He is ruling, then that ought to change every single thing about every practical moment of our day. Now there might be a place for frozen dinners. And for 10 steps to avoiding pain. 30 steps to a better life. But there's a better diet offered to us in the Scripture that feeds us well. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. God comes, sending His Son, revealing His character, revealing His nature, perfectly making a way for us through His purification to have a relationship with Him. Do you want to see God? Look to Jesus. you want to be right with God? Look to Jesus. Amen. Hopefully after that, we, we don't want frozen dinners as much. Like Try a steak instead. It's worth it. Jesus is great. Let's pray together. Jesus, words fail to describe your greatness, your supremacy, your reign, your rule. And so, God, I'm not going to speak for a little bit. God, soak in our hearts the truths in your word. Seal in us from your word what needs to be sealed.